0: Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise, and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. A thug on the street, perhaps, but an extraordinary artist. Caravaggio's short, volatile life was as dark and dramatic as his paintings. Arrogant, rebellious and famous for picking fights, the Italian painter eventually had to flee Rome after killing someone on a tennis court. He died just four years later. Today, Dr Kathleen Olive takes us into the life and career of the most famous Italian painter of the Baroque period and explains his role in art history and how his paintings are viewed today. Kathleen is a literary and cultural historian with a passion for the visual arts, interior design, fashion history, and contemporary fiction. She holds a BA with first-class honours and a PhD from the Department of Italian Studies at the University of Sydney. She teaches Italian language literature and history. And in 2015, her edition of the Codex Rustici, a 15th century text that she worked on for her doctoral studies, was presented to Pope Francis on his first official visit to Florence. So Kathleen, welcome today. Thanks too. So Caravaggio. So he had a pretty dramatic life, like his art. So can you tell us a little bit about his his career and how it sort of fed its way into his paintings?
1: Sure. Caravaggio is an artist that we tend to see a strong connection between his biography and his career, which is something I think we feel quite confident doing with artists today, looking in their biography, in their paintings for traces of their biography. So he was actually born in the north of Italy and that's where his name comes from. So he was born in a town called Caravaggio, which is not so far outside Milan, uh, in what was then an independent state within Italy. It was the Duchy of Lombardy. And he was born there in September 15, 1871. And he didn't really have very much from the beginning that would have indicated that he would become an artist. His father was a stonemason, but he was a stonemason for a quite important local family, a branch of the Colonna family from Rome, and they were a really powerful dynasty. So because of that, he seems to have got entree into the world uh, of art. He trained apprenticed as an artist quite late. So normally boys would go into an apprenticeship at around eight, between ages eight to 12. He goes in as a teenager, probably because his parents die um, when he's reasonably young. He loses his father and then his mother. So he goes into painting as a career quite late. Um, that's unusual. We don't have any surviving works from that early formative part of his career. That's really unusual, especially for Italian art. It's so well documented. Uh, so we do know that he trains in northern Italy. He trains with a painter called Petezzano, who we really only talk about in relation to Caravaggio. No one else finds him very interesting in his own right, but he had himself been trained under Titian so he came with a very good pedigree Uh, and so Caravaggio comes out of that milieu, the milieu of northern Italian painting but he moves to rome in 1592 still quite a young man then when he does that by our standards uh, early 20s but by the standards of the time he was all, already should have been quite an independent um, fully functioning career artist by then people like titian already were had their own workshops he doesn't so he moves to rome and his job in rome is to paint fruit and flowers for other artists paintings so they'll they'll be working on some big commission and he gets the bowl of fruit to do on the table. So that's how his career in Rome starts off, really at a very low level. And again, there's a suggestion that he has this um, entree into the Roman world, thanks to his hometown connections with the Colonna family. He's not a particularly easy person to get along with. He has um, quite a difficult personality from what we can work out. He's always getting into trouble. He bears Arms when that's illegal. He gets into fistfights on the street. He throws a dish of artichokes in a waiter's face um, because he thinks the artich- the art the waiter was insulting his friend. Um, he runs with a very violent crowd uh, of other artists and layabouts, basically. Uh, and he is also involved in the CD world of prostitution, which in Rome in the seventeenth uh, late. 16th, early 17th century was a very big industry uh, and he's clearly moving around on the outside of that circle as well. So he's not someone when he moves to Rome that we would think of as being an easy person to spend time with, but he does get picked up by some pretty significant patrons and that propels his career. So he does spend a lot of time on the street. He does. He's he's really an artist of the street and I think that's one of the reasons why we love him and find him so fascinating because in our own time I think for many of us, we see art as a kind of a high cultural thing. We put it up there with classical music or classical dance, for example, uh, the theatre. And it's refreshing in some ways to think that there's this person who's drinking in taverns at night and brawling on the street and apparently dabbling a little bit uh, in running prostitutes on the side to make a little bit of extra money and then turning out at a certain point in his career, these paintings that we just see as extraordinary masterpieces. So it's, it's so there's something refreshing about it and also a little bit of a frisson of danger which I think we like too. So how
0: unusual was it that he then put those people on his canvases?
1: That's it's Unusual in how he does it, I think. So not unusual at all that you would use people from your circle as models for your artworks. Uh, There wasn't a professional career yet as an artist's model. That would come in Rome in about 100 years of Caravaggio's death. There were people who were professional artists' models, particularly women, because of the difficulty of getting access to women's bodies to, to draw them and paint them. So That part of it's not so unusual that you would just grab someone you knew and say, stand like this, wear this, pose like that, and I'm going to quickly get you down on the canvas. That part's not unusual. But to make them stand in as really grand actors um, in these dramatic scenes that are from the Bible or from the lives of the, the dramatic episodes in Lives of the Saints, that's quite unusual that you would do that, that you would have your friend, a prostitute, stand in for the Virgin Mary—that's extraordinary—and that ruffled a lot of feathers in his own time.
0: And I mean, he had people with very gnarly faces and dirty nails. He didn't try and disguise anything. No, of that, did no, he?
1: not at all. In fact, he his aim, I think, was to celebrate that. And this was something that his contemporaries found very puzzling. They either really liked it or they really were too challenged by it, I think. So there were people who wrote about him in his own life and he is quite well um, written about in his own lifetime. There are about three contemporaries who write histories uh, of his life and times and and works and one of them says, if you're particularly unattractive, Caravaggio is going to love you even more uh, because of the potential that you give him uh, in terms of the art that he'll produce. So he particularly loves older people and if you look at um, the paintings of Caravaggio, there's always an older man, an older woman. Their, their faces are always so lined, so creased, but it gives him all of these challenges as an artist in terms of how the light falls across the face and the way the skin has a kind of a transparent glow to it. So he seems to particularly like uh, things that we would see as challenging aspects of someone's appearance. He really uh, tends to focus on that goiters, for example. He has one model that he uses quite a lot, an older woman with a very large goiter on her neck while he's living in Naples. So yeah, he does go to that kind of um, seemier, more difficult side, I think, of our natures, but also of our physical characteristics as well. And he used to use himself too. He did, which which is not uncommon. So artists from um, from the Middle Ages well into the, the time of Caravaggio used themselves as models, again, because of availability, all you needed was a mirror. And we do know from an inventory that was made of Caravaggio's house after he um, skipped out on his rental contract, his landlady uh, sued him for a broken bond. Uh, and so we have the court records about that and we know that he owned a mirror, so he obviously used the mirror to study his own appearance, and he's in his work quite a lot, always with what we might see as a bit of a sad psychological dimension. So there, there is a suggestion in how he uses his own face in his artworks that his relationship with himself was also a difficult one. So he'll show himself, for example, as Goliath, who's just been beheaded by uh, da- the boy David, which is... a pretty sad, emasculating way to see yourself as the defeated uh, giant in terms of a self-portrait. Or he'll, he has a very famous portrait of himself that he painted after a night out on the town where he's recovering the next day and his skin has this horrible grey-green pallor, uh, for example, and that's known as the sick Bacchus portrait. So he, has, he uses himself, but he uses himself in these very um, sensitive but often melancholy ways. And also that sort of screaming Medusa. Yes, yeah, that's an extraordinary painting. In in some ways it's difficult to call that a painting because it's actually a shield. So the painting you're referring to is in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, which has a fabulous collection of Caravaggio's paintings. And he painted that for a patron who needed to send an official gift up to Florence to the Medici family who were ruling Florence at that time. And so obviously from the stories of antiquity, we know that uh, Perseus is able to uh, conquer the Medusa by going in against her with a shield. Uh, And she sees her own reflection. In his shield uh, and is turned into stone, of course, as we know. Uh, and he is shielded from her uh, death. Uh giving visage by that shield. So that's the painting that Caravaggio did, is actually a shield. It's painted on a convex surface designed to look like the rounded uh, shield and it's the screaming head of the Medusa as she sees sees her own reflection and her head has been cut off. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary painting, very, very powerful, hard to look at for a long period of time too. It
0: certainly is. So so what made him so distinctive? I mean, the the paintings caused, well, some people found them shocking, didn't they? Absolutely. At the time.
1: So, certainly, one of the things that people find shocking is that he is using regular, everyday people from more um, rough sides of life to stand in for these very important, significant, often religious. People uh, And that was certainly something that was shocking. But what's more shocking for his contemporaries is his love of what we would call naturalism. So the thing that Caravaggio wants to represent is the world exactly as it appears in front of him. And he doesn't feel a need to idealise that. So if he's painting someone who has a wart on their face that wart will be there. He's not going to airbrush that out for them in their portrait. And this was quite shocking for his contemporaries because the prevailing trend of the time was a highly idealised view of the world, having its its uh, inspiration in ancient Greek and Roman models in terms of sculpture and also uh, Roman painting, but then idealised so that everyone's presented as the most beautiful version of themselves. And Caravaggio draws from nature, so he doesn't draw an idea of something. He wants to capture the essence of the object itself, not its perfect representation, and that was a very different philosophy of art to the one that his contemporaries were painting with. So how
0: revolutionary was the way he used light? Because this sort of light and shadow interplay, isn't there? Mm.
1: Well, we what? talk a lot about that. We almost use that as the most defining characteristic for his work. That's what we would call chiaroscuro, which simply means in Italian light and shade. So what you're doing is you have a high contrast between light and shaded parts of your artwork, in Caravaggio's case canvas, because he's always painting uh, on canvas, not on board. And he uses that as a way to heighten the dramatic intensity of a scene. So people seem to emerge from out of the darkness and some parts of their face will be beautifully illuminated. The rest of their face melts away into shadows. It's very, very dramatic. He doesn't invent it. I don't want to do any myth busting here, but he's certainly not the first painter to use it. So this is just one of many um, tools that artists had in their kit uh, in in the time that Caravaggio is working. So he doesn't come up with this idea of chiaroscuro, but he certainly makes it a signature. So it's something that He doesn't really deviate from once he starts using that style in his Roman period. He doesn't leave that strong contrast between light and shade behind. And if you think about viewing a work in situ, one of the great pleasures with Caravaggio is that a lot of his paintings are still in the places they were designed for originally. You see how the light that he incorporates in the artwork is actually an extension of the real light conditions of the place where the artwork was going to be located. So the, but once you realise that his figures are life-size and the light is imitating the real light conditions of the place where you see it, they become almost like tableau vivant. So they're like real people moving around inside this real space with the light functioning the way it should and it gives it a, an, an extraordinary intensity of power. Yes,
0: and he uses it quite theatrically, doesn't he? Says so You see who's focused, who's
1: out of the picture, absolutely of and he I think theatre is the right word for him because he has this motif that he uses again and again and again of a rich red velvet curtain that's been drawn off to one side and you see a scene. It's almost as if the curtain has just been rolled back for you to see this scene that's in front of you. I think theatre and drama are at the forefront of his mind, absolutely.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned the still lifes earlier. Mm. Um, you know, I've
1: read people say he was one of the great still life artists mm. of all time. Mm, I can, Yeah, I can see why people would say that. It's it's where his work comes from, that he trains essentially as a still life painter because Peter Zano, his master uh, in Milan when he moves to Milan, is known for his still life paintings. So that's certainly how he trains is as a still life painter. And that approach that he has to capturing life in all of its reality is something that he brings to still life painting as well. So you see a beautiful basket of fruit and you look closer and you realise there's a a wormhole left in one of the apples or the leaves are withering on the on the vine uh, when you look at a bunch of grapes, for example, or you, you realise there's a blush of mould across the surface of a grape. Uh, so again, there's this real attention to nature, to life as we see it, as we experience it. And this means, I think, that his still lifes are not saccharine. So it's not just a beautiful, big vase of perfect flowers. It's something that says a bit more about nature, life, decay, corruption, all of those bigger kind of philosophical questions that he certainly didn't shy away from. So some people
0: find a lot of sexuality or implicit sexuality in the work and think that he was homosexual and that the young guy, boy, who worked for him in the studio might have been a lover... What do you think about all that?
1: There's really strong evidence in the archive for the fact that Caravaggio was having a relationship with at least two of the people who worked in his uh, workshop who were men. So he had a very close friend and lover, Mario Minitti, who is a Sicilian painter who actually shelters him in Sicily later in life when he's on the run trying to escape a murder charge. And he also forms a relationship with a young lad in his workshop called Cecco uh, who poses for him in quite a number of very highly charged erotic artworks. So certainly there were relationships there. But we also know from the archive that he had important sexual relationships with women as well so for example with women who are working as sex workers we know that he was involved with some of them as well so I think the for me the thing I would say because this has been a, an issue of great controversy recently in terms of Caravaggio's career um this question of do we claim him as one of the first gay uh, artists to celebrate, uh, or do we say that that question of sexuality isn't important to his work at all? I would say that before the modern age, we defined sexuality very differently. You know, we have ideas of people being gay and straight. Those labels simply didn't apply at the time. Caravaggio was clearly, as we see from his art, a lover of people. Uh, he had a deep um, understanding of empathy for and uh, appreciation for human nature in all its forms. And the relevance to his life and his art, I think, is where those relationships take him. So they take him down quite a a violent path, and that is why in the end, in fact, he has to flee from Rome. So certainly I think we can read that into his artwork, that these relationships that he forms with men and with women uh, do take him into some harder areas that end up making his life quite difficult for him to control. It's sad. I mean, he died... Very young, really. Mm. He dies in in the summer of 1610. Right. Uh, So he is a young man. Uh, He lives hard and fast and dies young. He has all those kind of cliches that we like about our artists. But, yes, he dies in very sad circumstances, really. He's been on the run for a good number of years. Uh, He killed someone uh, on a tennis court in Rome. Some people think perhaps just in the heat of the moment. It seems quite clear, however, from recent archival information that it was Uh, certainly a planned thing. He schemes to murder this person for whatever reasons. That's still being highly debated. But that means he has to leave Rome because the Pope puts a price out, a bounty on his head essentially. He's always on the run in the last years of his life. He doesn't feel comfortable wherever he settles. He f- clearly feels surveyed, surveilled. He is set upon in Naples. He has to escape prison on Malta. I mean, it's all the the stuff of, of high drama. But it ends quite sadly because he believes uh, in the summer uh, of 1610 that the Pope has lifted uh, the price on his head, so he thinks he, it's safe for him to go back to Rome. He embarks on a ship with all of his remaining artworks that he has, they're highly valuable. He's going to Rome to try to sell those, obviously. But the ship pulls in at a port between Naples and Rome and the local official sees his papers, hears his name and doesn't know that the bounty has been lifted from his head, so holds him overnight in prison. The ship, he was on sails without him with all of his paintings. So the next day or a few days later when the uh, confusion is cleared up and he's released from prison, he sets out on foot to try and catch up with the ship that has all his paintings on it and some are on the coast in Italy in the pre-modern world before Mussolini drained all of the swamps is just a season of high malaria so he seems to contract malaria and he dies alone in a pauper's hospital in a, a small place in Tuscany called Porto Ercole so it's a, a sad story uh, really he never gets back to Rome he never is able to sell those paintings uh, and re-pick up his career where he left off uh, in Rome so it's quite a melancholy end Was he very influential at the time? Yes and no. There are two kind of strands of artists who pick up um, with the challenges that Caravaggio has laid down. They pick those challenges up and run with them or they utterly reject them. Those are the only kind of options that people seem to have for Caravaggio, that that gauntlet that he has thrown down. So he's very, very influential in Naples in particular. And because Naples in his time is ruled by Spain, it's part of um, the vice royalty of Spain. That means his work and uh, those of his followers known as the Caravaggists are imported uh, into Spain. And so that uh, kicks off a whole painting tradition in Spain that we call tenebrism. In Rome, he was uh, good friends with a lot of Flemish artists. Rubens was a great admirer of his, advised his clients to snap up reject paintings by Caravaggio. So, in fact, his tradition lives on in Flemish and then later in French painting as well, that strong uh, contrast of light and shade and also that interest in real people, how they live, uh, what the world really looks like uh, around us. But the in Italy, for the most part outside of Naples, his tradition is utterly rejected and Italian art goes a very different way. It becomes very interested in what we would call neoclassicism, so almost sculptural painting, highly idealised None of that sturm and drang uh, that you get with Caravaggio, just very, very placid and beautiful. And the tradition that Caravaggio had uh, kicked off initially is really only brought back into notice in the 20th century. So he's, for the most initially, he's utterly ignored. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Era. So he was forgotten for mm. a long, long time.
1: I think actively forgotten. People didn't didn't like his work, and it is very challenging to look at. So he certainly wasn't taken off the walls. His works remained where they were. Uh, they they had a value for connoisseurs who understood his place in the Italian art tradition. So he certainly didn't disappear from view in that sense. But in terms of art history, he was a very easy target to criticise. So oh, he just painted. The as he saw them, almost artless, that he wasn't really putting much work into it. He just painted it as he saw it without even any preparatory work, as if that was some kind of a criticism, that he didn't have a strong training as an academic artist, which was what was valued until the 20th century.
0: So how did that happen? How did his um, reputation
1: become renewed, as it were? It's really thanks to one art historian whose name was Roberto Longhi, who is responsible actually for bringing a lot of artists back to our attention. He did the same thing for Artemisia Gentileschi, who was a follower herself of Caravaggio and one of the the most significant women painters uh, in the Italian tradition. He also was a great champion of the artist Giorgio Morandi. So Roberto Longhi, in addition to being an art historian, was also a connoisseur of art and a collector of art, and his wife conveniently was a novelist. So together they investigate the career of Caravaggio. He mounted in the 50s, that's how recently we're talking, a a very big what we call monographic exhibition, so just dedicated to Caravaggio's work in Milan, and his wife wrote a bodice ripping uh, dramatisation of the life of Caravaggio, and she also wrote one for Artemisia Gentileschi. So I think the two together were a kind of a, a perfect weapon for bringing Caravaggio back to our attention. So how would he be viewed today then? Today he's almost without price, I'd say. When people think of Italian art, now one of the first painters they think of is Caravaggio. And if you look at big blockbuster exhibitions that are group shows that bring together collections of old masters, his name will always be in the title because it will guarantee sold-out tickets for that, ex- that exhibition. And the exhibition might only have one painting by Caravaggio, but that doesn't matter. People will flock to, to the exhibition to see it. And I think it's because... because... Because we're so fascinated by the career, um, the elements of his life that seem to infuse his work, this sense that he's a rock star artist. He's like the Rolling Stones of the 17th century and that's very attractive to us as gallery goers. But also because his revival has been quite recent since the 1950s really with a huge spike in attention in the 70s and 80s, there are still a lot more paintings by Caravaggio that remain to be discovered. So four years ago, someone found a Caravaggio painting in their attic in a house in France. So (laughs) more discoveries remain to um, emerge and I think that's something Thing that we're attracted to as well. The idea that you could just be rummaging in your barn and find a $170 million painting is a pretty attractive fantasy to have. We all wish. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for your
0: time. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.